So we actually got up to Galatians 3, verse 19, which is the really juicy stuff in terms of Adventist history. I don't know if we want to go into Adventist history. If Katrina wants to, I'll let her. So verse 19. David, would you read verses 19? I, what kind of Adventist history with Galatians? I don't know this one. Oh, you don't? Well, then we'll have to go into it. Yeah, you don't have to do a long explanation. But The first verse says, why then the law? Why don't we do that after we read a whole passage? I think, David... Um, Let's take it at face value before we talk about the history Okay. skew it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. Uh, 19 through what? 19 through 22. Okay. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was appointed through the angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. I think we should read the next passage because okay. we're kind of stopping in the middle. Katrina, would you read verses 23 to the end? But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So, any thoughts or comments or questions? Uh, While you're pondering, there is a similar statement in 1 Timothy. Yes, 1 Timothy 1.8 Now we know that the law is good if one uses it legitimately. This means understanding that the law was laid down not for the innocent, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the godless and sinful, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their mother, father or mother, for murderers, fornicators, sodomites, slave traders, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching that conforms to the glorious gospel of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. So what really struck me in, in terms of parallel is this: uh, the law isn't laid down for the innocent; it's laid down for the guilty, um, for those who break the law. So, one question: just starting in nineteen, it says that the law was added because of transgressions. So, is that saying then that there was no law prior to that, or that it just had to be spelled out? 
once transgressions. Yeah, is this, is this uh, the law in its its most pristine form, or is this the, the law the, in its the, adapted form? Correct, because uh, it doesn't say, and nope. I, I have my my suspicions, but uh, I I think I th- Paul is Hebrew, right? And I think we have to put him in the context of the Hebrew Bible. And, and suggest that Paul's pretty practical and pragmatic in, in his discussion of everything, he would be referring to Torah, written Torah. Okay. I, I would think. I don't think he has some kind of lofty uh, perception of pristine law in terms of what he's saying here. Right. He may have that in terms of his background and, and thinking, but uh, he's not. when he thinks about the law, he's thinking about pretty much Sinai. Yeah, because the if it's referring to just law in in general, then you get into kind of a chicken and egg sort of thing. Mm-hmm. As far as well, if there was no law, how could there be any transgression? Um, well, he actually argues that, isn't it? If there was no law in Romans, mm-hmm. uh, if there was no law, then there's no transgression, right? Except there was law. It, it is hard. It is a uh, but the law that was added because of transgressions, it would seem to me, would be the written-down law of Moses, of Sinai. That's how I've taken it. Well, I mean, that would be my assumption as well. I just yeah, but it is interesting to probe that a little bit and wonder. Um, but uh, but if you look back in early in Genesis, I mean, there are plenty of instances of where there was things that were referred to as sin or you know whether it be Joseph saying yeah how can I sin whatever right. but this is long before uh, the uh, Sinai or mm-hmm. you know you look mm-hmm. at uh, you know Cain and Abel or certainly Adam and Eve in the garden I mean just you know so all these things that were being treated as being sin but there was no codification correct hmm Whatever, okay, whatever this law is that's added, it's a law that is added in the context of sin. I, I think we have to leave it there, whether it's pre-Sinai or post-Sinai or Sinai itself. Well, you wouldn't think people have been left dumb about all this. I mean, look at why the flood and all that. Well, I think once you injure somebody, they, that person who's injured thinks you sinned. Yeah. You know. So there was some concept there. There was some concept of that whole thing. And God certainly doesn't let Cain get away with murdering his brother Abel without a conversation. Hmm. And some consequences. But the main import seems to be that you're saved by faith. Mm-hmm. The law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, verses 21 to 22. For if a law had been given that we could make alive, then righteousness would indeed come through the law. But the scripture has imprisoned all things under the power of sin, so that what is promised through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were under the law. I think part of the problem... At least, and, and I just think back to my own experience growing up and my understanding of law and where this all fit together. 
um, and I may have talked about this before here, but um, you know, it kind of grow up with this idea. At least I did that that in some ways these laws were the, like these arbitrary barriers or, or you know hoops to jump through or whatever. And God had this idea: okay, if you can make it through this obstacle course, then we we have a chance of actually having a relationship, you know, kind of thing. Um, but you have to prove yourself to by navigating through these, these somewhat arbitrary laws. Um, and it wasn't until you know, I'm embarrassed to, to, to admit how late in my in life it was that I finally started realizing that that was completely out of. Uh, but, it, it, but it, the, it's easy to think that, though. But nonetheless, um, but it wasn't until I started realizing that it, it all comes back to, as we've talked about before, that God's defining characteristic is love, and that that's what makes relationships possible, and 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 so on, and that sin ultimately is anything that damages these relationships or makes it. Uh, you know, it damages people or things. That da- damages our ability to love and trust. Exactly, and and so the the law, when it came down, is it, it, initially given. Um, we'll just, for sake of convenience, we'll just refer to just to Sinai as being our um, the thing. Even though there it appears to have been that God was really revealing this prior to that as well, but uh, nonetheless, um, that. So God has called these people and said, I, we, I want you to be like me. And my defining characteristic is love. I want your defining characteristic to be love. And so, but you've got these people who have been living in slavery and say, well, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in love? And so God says, okay, well, I'll tell you what. Here's ten bullet points mm-hmm. that this will kind of at least give you a gross outline of of what this means um and but then you know being people we start looking for loopholes and start and we, do, entirely we start being it, it, we start putting it in a very structured formula right and completely ignoring the actual spirit of what it was and but that it was kind of like um uh, one way I've heard it described was it was like there was a light shining behind God and the Ten Commandments was his shadow. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of gave mm-hmm. a an outline of, of that. But then when Jesus came, it was like he'd stepped in, you know, out to where we could actually see what had made the shadow. Yeah. Um, and then all of a sudden... That's a great illustration. Um, that um, And now all of a sudden it starts bringing... So that's where, you know, you start saying, well, you know, you've been told don't kill anybody, but that's just kind of the end result. It actually starts back here when you get angry at them. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, if you start, when you start thinking things, they, kind of, that's where the problem starts. You know, and that's just as bad as if, you know, it may not have as many consequences in your life if you just get mad at them as opposed to killing them, because then you don't have, just being mad at them, no one's going to get thrown in jail for, right for just being mad. The, the but, law doesn't have that capacity to, to govern the thoughts. But nonetheless, you know, that, and so um, being able to make that transition, the, all these sort of things start falling into a yeah. little more... 
there's, place. There's two things that come to my mind. Uh, on your comment that um, God had to give us ten bullet points because we wouldn't know what love was and what how love behaved. Uh, that was graphically brought home to me and I in my ethics class years ago, first ten years I taught ethics, I had my students read the classic situation ethics by Joseph Fletcher. And Joseph Fletcher's thesis is pretty much you do the loving thing and that's the ethical thing to do. And that means sometimes you can do things that the law forbids, but that love demands. And I asked my students to write a review on it. I told them they didn't have to agree with it. I had a very mature student, that is, she was older, who wrote a very interesting review. And my reader, who was grading these, said, you really need to read her review. So I sat down and read it. She had been raised in a very dysfunctional home and was kicked out of her home when she was 14 and forced to live on the streets. And she said that she would not have survived that street experience intact and and remained a moral person if she had not been taught in Sunday school the Ten Commandments. That the Ten Commandments, she said, I didn't know what love was. I hadn't been loved at home. Um, I, I couldn't know what love was. And she said the flaw in Joseph Fletcher's book is he assumes everybody's been loved and knows what love is. And she said, that's not true. Not everybody knows. So they need the Ten Commandments as a guide until love comes knocking at their door and they can embrace it. So that that comes to my mind. The second illustration is a little more juvenile. <laughs> When I was a teenager, John Osborne, who was campus chaplain at La Sierra University, did a camp meeting series for the youth. And he gave a sermon titled, Rules Are for Fools. (laughs) 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 And uh, it was was very clever. He he was a very clever person with words and, and expressing ideas. He came... To, to illustrate, you know, you don't set up rules until somebody does something that, that you know, you have to have a rule for, otherwise things That's become chaos. syllabus isn't like this. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I had, you know, my syllabus was evaluated last year, I think it was, or the year before, and uh, there was a committee of faculty that were evaluating it, and one faculty wrote on my, your syllabus is too long. <laughs> And I'm like, well, you haven't taught for 24 years. (laughs) (laughs) I agree, unfortunately. (laughs) Anyway, the classic story I use for my students on this Rules Are for Fools is um, I I went to school here for two years, 1975 to 77, and then I migrated to Andrews University to finish my undergraduate degree. And... I had only been there a few weeks, and I was sitting in the cafeteria and at a table with a bunch of students, and they were all saying, did you hear what happened at PUC? And, of course, PUC had a really bad reputation because it was California. What year was that? 77. Huh? Autumn. Oh. It's always had a... Oh. It's, it's, well... California has a bad reputation, east of the Rockies. So California Adventists are bad, and so PUC is in California, so it's bad. Well, and unfortunately, somebody lived up to that. I had a a student, this was later, like 
79. 70, no, it was 77. A student asked me if I was new and where I was from, and I told her California, and she said, California? Are you, you're not crazy? <laughs> you're from California? You don't burn buildings? And, you know, you know. Well, a student had set fire to President Castle's door. Okay. Office door at PUC. No. So we have it tamed now. Uh, we have tamed the college. But anyway, uh, what happened at PUC that morning at the breakfast table is that they'd had a food fight in the in the dining hall. No. And they did two thousand dollars worth of damage, which in 1977 that's was a lot of money. That's like Still. ten thousand dollars or something. Yeah. And uh, more than that. But. They were like. How could they do that? You know, That's so and of course Andrews didn't have carpet on the floor, and PU, you know PUC's dining commons did at that time. Uh, well, I knew exactly what must have happened. And the favorite thing of PUC students in the in the late seventies, mid seventies, was to celebrate people's birthday by taking a pie that you could buy whole pies, small pies, mm-hmm. and taking a pie and putting it in their, their face. face. That was their favorite thing. Hopefully it wasn't a hard crust on the top of <laughs> <laughs> Their favorite pie to throw in the face was banana cream. Cream, cream pies. Oh. Probably what happened is the food fight erupted over it. Over it, yeah. Somebody got a pie in their face that didn't deserve it because it wasn't their birthday, or who knows what happened. Or but maybe they, it was their birthay. Or they maybe it was and decided to, to throw food. Right. And, and so they ended up with this huge food fight, everybody joining in. Of course, this was in the days when PUC had 2,000-plus students. So I could just imagine that the faculty quickly said, Thou shalt not throw food in the cafeteria. And the pie in the face started had to stop the other thing that stopped is the cafeteria stopped making pies they stopped making pies by the time I came back in 1987 there were no pies yeah, there weren't pies when I was here I, I, I was here from 82 to 87 yeah yeah see they stopped making pies that's very sad but pie is nice <laughs> So fools deserve rules. That's one of the ways I'd understand added because of transgressions. I recently came across something. Apparently Reed College up in uh, Oregon. I don't know if it's still this way, but recently, until recently, it was, they basically, the only rules were, one, you can't do anything to harm yourself, can't do anything to harm anyone else, and be honest. You know, no, no cheating, no lying. And those were the only rules. Um, and it's and it's governed and if it's uh, by a student council. So if there, it's if it's felt that you've broken one of those three tenets, it's taken before the the, the student council, and they will decide whether or Your not. Fate. <laughs> <laughs> whether or not you you did or didn't, and if so, what the the punishment should be, and apparently it works very well there. Huh, I like that. Keep it simple. It would certainly shorten my syllabus. Uh-huh. 
Of course, the, what would harm themselves is cheating. Yeah. And that's one of the biggest things that has lengthen my syllabus is the problems I have with students turning in fake assignments mm. or uh, I, I've only had it once, but it was so hair-raising hair that I added a whole long thing of what to do when your computer breaks down and that sort of thing. I have so much, so many rules. But unfortunately, we live in a very litigious society. And, and uh, because we all think legal, you have to cover your, we have to cover our all backside. Bases. All bases. We have to put everything in writing to the Nat's eyebrow. Maybe let's move to the concept of faith, since this is uh-huh. a kind of depressing topic. But it, it does, before we leave the law being added because of transgressions, it does suggest that God had to adapt his ways, that, that Jesus really is our model, and Jesus is a higher standard than simply, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, uh, you shall not bear false witness. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I was thinking, is, as far as what you were talking about, as far as with the situational ethics, um, and I don't want to go down a whole other rabbit hole here, but I do think it's somewhat applicable to all this, is that the other thing that we have to worry about in that is, well, kind of twofold. One is, one, it ignores or it precludes the possibility of God stepping in to the situation. Um, that, that somehow I have, to, I have to break this rule in order for it to make sure that this happens. Um, mm-hmm. but that there there is uh, the possibility of God actually stepping in mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. in a superhuman way still ad- achieving that and if we circumvent that that we we then preve- or we then prevent the opportunity of coming for God to actually uh, step when in when I talk um, about lying of course the most standard uh, example of when when to lie is the Holocaust, the Holocaust right. stories and, and all of that. I have two stories to tell. And one is Corrie Ten Boom and her lying about the radio and uh, having arguments with her sister Lolly uh, or sister-in-law, I can't remember, uh, but having arguments with Lolly about when to lie and when not to lie, and Lolly was very firm about that. It's interesting, Lolly never went to a concentration camp, but then she never hid Jews. But her son skipped the draft and constantly had to hide. And they had a trap door under the table, and uh, they had a long tablecloth that draped down to the floor, and they had a carpet over the trap door. And one day the Gestapo came to get her Lolly's uh, daughter's brother, Lolly's son. And um, the, the Gestapo said, "Where's your brother?" And, Lo- and uh, Lolly had taught her children never to lie. So the daughter pointed to the table and said, "He's there. He's under there or something." And so the Gestapo pulled back the tablecloth and looked, and she burst out laughing 
because she was so nervous and, and tense. And they thought she was laughing at them, that she had put them on. It was a trick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a trick. And they left. Uh, and then there's the story of um, Rico Mundy's mother, or mother's mother, his grandmother, who was tempted to lie that they were hiding a Jewish boy. Instead, she said, you may search my house repeatedly, and they left her alone. So you have these stories where God intervenes, and and you're spared having to lie. On the other hand, Ellen White did understand that sometimes we must err. And she doesn't spell out what error means. I don't think it means deliberately breaking a ten, one of the Ten Commandments. But there are times when we have to err. And she said, if you must err, err on the side of the people. Or if you must err, err on the side of mercy. Mm-hmm. So, I think when we start working with law as a fixed thing, our tendency is to be very inflexible. And I think when we move to a bigger parameter, which is Jesus, then we become less inflexible. That doesn't mean we go around breaking the law and lying at will. But what it means is that the things that we tend to put in the basket of law we become more flexible about. As a therapist, you can say I lie a lot through the years. People say, well, did, did he tell you that? I can't answer her. I don't lie to her. I say no, but I have to redirect that. So sometimes lying is redirecting. It's not just saying no or yes. It's redirecting them. Or people will say, well, do you know... But I heard about so-and-so. I don't know. No, I haven't heard anything. Because, you know, maybe they're my patient or something. So all the time, you know, if you want to be real rigid about the law. One time my dad... Like at the counseling center, they don't ask me because they know I won't tell them. Yeah, you're, you're, you have, what is it, Hipp- Hippocratic mm-hmm. Oath? You have to follow. Oh, that and HIPAA. <laughs> and HIPAA. <laughs> we just built on the Hippocratic Oath. <laughs> well. I mean, the word is... <laughs> we were going to say something. Oh. Katrina. One time my dad... Well, my dad had to appear in court many times, you know, subpoenaed to testify, you know, about patients. Sure. But one time he went and um, not only was... Um, you know, the patient, you know, was there, but the judge was dad's patient too. Mm-hmm. And, of course, he must yeah, act like he doesn't know anyone or, you know, anything, <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. And, and even, you know, people who have, have some fame and that, you know, we, we don't yeah. know about it. Well, we're, we're actually told the doctor should not tell the patient everything. Uh, they should refrain from telling a patient uh, how sick they are. That's not always wise, because if they need to prepare for death, then that's not right. Right. I don't think she was referring to that. I think she was referring to situations where it would actually be detrimental to them to know. It's hard to make that judgment, though, too. Yeah. But um, 
kind of in that area of the situational ethics. The one thing, though, that I think we need to be careful about is once you've opened that door as a possibility, um, that rationalization is such a powerful thing that we're able to convince ourselves that we're doing it for someone else when actually we're just trying to spare ourselves the discomfort of mm-hmm. of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, ultimately... Doing the there's always a price to doing the right thing. There's a price to doing the wrong thing too, but the difference is doing the right thing. You pay the price up front, and you can see what it is, and you go in knowing what it is. Um, whereas, but the temptation is that that Satan comes and says, "Oh, I know that that would be painful to do that. Uh, you might risk losing your job or a friend, or it might cost you money, or do you know, whatever, or time, or whatever the thing is that you'd like to avoid. That I've got this other way of doing it, and we can we can bypass that. You can still get to the end that you want, it still gets to a good end, but we can just skip paying that that down payment of, for doing it the the right way. Um, but what you find out is that the back end. There's always a payment for doing it the wrong way too, um, mm-hmm. and at that point, there's no getting around it. You're stuck with it, uh, and it mm-hmm. usually ends up being worse than if you've done it the right way. It's just different. Uh, but that, uh, but I think that's part of s- sin is one damaging relationships, but also it's a way of trying to skip that that whatever that cost is for doing it um, the honest and right way. So how do we how do we apply this in such a way as to not be too rigid, but at the same time not be too um, malleable to the point of rationalization? How do we live? I'm I'm thinking of the paradigm of chaos and rigidity, and how do we live in the middle between those two in a in a mature way? I think one of the things that we have a person who who tries to live in the sunlight of Christ instead of the shadow of the law, is that they weigh every decision very carefully. They don't take it lightly. They don't simply try to get around it. They take a, do a, take a responsible way to deal with it, in a prayerful way, and depend on God to give them whatever they need for that situation. Not the least of which being the wisdom to know. Exactly. To know when when it is to err and when it is to not, and when it is to um, sidestep the truth and when it is to confront the truth. I think it's, for me, important to understand that God gives us principles to live by and that His Spirit can guide us in how we apply them. Mm-hmm. And so we need to look at the principle of the matter. What is the right thing to do uh, in this case? Mm-hmm. Um, and like you said, maybe that uh, means uh, more rigidly applying it, saying, all right, this has happened, these are the consequences. Um, if someone has done something wrong, you know, someone murders someone, you know, we want to see consequences applied, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we also... Uh, within this broader sphere of our lives, uh, want to understand that God has given us law uh, because of sin, because he wants us to live by uh, the principles of right doing. Yeah. 
loving God, loving our neighbor, and uh, valuing the things that God values. And is it possible that if we apply the life of Christ to the principle, to the application of the principle, that our goal is to be the most redemptive in the case? Because I think of I think of a situation where a couple of late teenagers got into an argument that lasted 36 hours, and it was so intense, and and it couldn't they couldn't come to resolution, and they just went battled it on and on and on and on and on. That finally he picked it was a couple, he picked up the gun and shot her dead. And I'm like that really solved things. Yeah, like, but he was he was at the breaking point. I think at that point, because they had not eaten, they had not slept, they had not drunk water. They, you know, they were just locked. His, her parents decided instead of prosecuting according to the law, decided to do what is called restorative justice. And the only lawyer they could find that would do restorative justice was a very expensive lawyer in San Francisco. They lived in, like, Ohio or someplace. And um, so they hired this lawyer to come and adjudicate this uh, justice. And it's it's based on the same paradigm as uh, the apartheid. When it ended, they had the Truth, Truth and Reconciliation Committee, uh-huh. or, or concili- Commission, Re- Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So they would bring the two parties together, and the parents would tell the, the boy who, who shot their daughter how, how much they loved their daughter, what their daughter meant to them, and how beautiful she was. And, and, and then uh, and they would tell what her death meant to them, how hard it was, uh, and so on. And their goal was to not make him go for a life sentence. Their goal was to reform him, was to rehabilitate him. Uh, I never heard the end of the story uh, because the judge involved, or the prosecutor, I guess it was the prosecutor, did not want, he, he wanted to put him behind bars. Um, and that's not all bad. Sometimes being put behind bars is the most redemptive thing. Sometimes it takes behind bars and a lot of love combined to restore a person. Oh. And, and when a crime is committed, it's a crime against the state, not just the Right, parents. and that's why the prosecutor took that the stance that he did. We should at least ask the question, why was this issue so explosive for Adventists in the late 19th century? Starting from 1870s, you know, grew to a big problem in the 1880s, 1890s. What is it in this passage that would be so uh, explosive, so troubling to Adventists that they became gridlocked? uh, Because it was inconceivable the Sabbath was added because of transgression. It what? It was inconceivable the Sabbath was added because of transgression. A Sabbath is eternal. It was, it was started in Eden before sin entered the world. Yes, that that's what's what the argument led to. But their sticking point was, 
Is the law referring to the ceremonial law, the Mosaic law, or is it referring to the Ten Commandments? Right. And it was a great mm. controversy because uh, Ellet's, uh, Ellet Wagner's fa father or grandfather had researched it and Ellen White had written him a letter saying, no, it uh, just refers to uh, the Ten Commandments and then she loses the letter. And so 20 years later... This erupts. Ellen White can't find the letter. And they're disputing, is it the Ten Commandments? Is it the ceremonial law? And there's a deep division between the GC president. Everyone's divided yeah. over it. And George Butler. Ellen White says, well, we shouldn't, you know, worry about the letter. We should study the Bible for ourselves. We shouldn't let this be divisive. But she ends up concluding... And telling them that the law in Galatians uh, is not either the ceremonial law or the moral law. It's both. Mm -hmm. It's both. Because the consequence of saying, uh, well, it's the ceremonial law, right, or saying it's the moral law means that, uh, well, what do we do with the Sabbath? Because Adventists had become these diehard legalists. They lived for the law. That was their entire message. Mm -hmm. And so the whole issue of Galatians and righteousness by faith explodes in Minneapolis and then after that. And the church leaders are deeply divided because they had become so legalistic, so focused on the law, that Ellen White said, we need to start preaching Christ is our righteousness, mm -hmm. which is interesting because that's the very issue that Paul is getting into in Galatians is mm -hmm. he's trying to take their focus off this application of the law and circumcision and what it represents. And Paul becomes a complete heretic to uh, the Jews, the Judaizers in that era. Uh, he's basically completely lost his marbles and betrayed, you know, everything, uh, his entire heritage. So that's why he comes back in Romans. He writes a much softer version. Remember, this is his angry letter. Um, but he kind of like uh, explodes right the duck out of the bathtub by saying that the law was added because of transgressions. It wasn't part of God's eternal right plan. It, all of these things become questionable. But we must always go back to the context he's talking about inheritance is given to Abraham by promise, right, and not by the law, by faith, right? So that's the foundation that he's trying to lay here. So the law becomes something that's added on top of that foundation mm -hmm. of faith. Mm -hmm. Which is why the new covenant is a recap of the Abrahamic covenant of trust, promise and trust. And what is interesting is the Abrahamic covenant, when it's given initially, is not even stated to be a covenant. There's no word covenant in there. Uh, there's not even a word for promise. It is a promise. But it's like, this is our relationship. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is how who I, I and Abraham are together. Yeah. Very, so, ni very nice encapsulation right, of, yeah, really of the... So if people had stayed... In faith with the Lord, which has been the big issue from the beginning, then we would have had these layers and layers of laws. And but you know, I don't think, I, I think the 1844 movement did tend to lead toward faith for many. And then in the aftermath of the great disappointment as they picked up their lives and went on, 
and they came to believe the Sabbath. They had to deal with their past chaos, the chaos of the disappointment. And so they dealt with it by rigidity. Yes, and everyone else is Babylon, the Protestants at Babylon. That's why they called them the fallen churches. Mm. We were coming out of them, right, and always contrasting themselves to others. So they pulled on these things and said, this is going to define our identity. The law mm-hmm. is going to define us yeah. and Sabbath-keeping and this, 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 yeah. this. And so anything that attacks that attacks their identity. It's the same thing for the, the Jews here. Circumcision right. was their identity, right. right? And for Adventists, the Sabbath was their identity. So any diminishing of the law diminishes the and Sabbath it, and impacts who we see, how we see it. And that's too threatening. The fact that the, that the, there was a specific point in time where the law was spelled out doesn't mean that the underlying principles that the law is based on suddenly came into existence at that no. point. And so it's the form the form that we're dealing with, the form right. of, of God's love, the form in which it was given at Sinai. And I mean and the first you know talk about the Sabbath, I mean in Exodus 14, uh, it starts talking about what they should or shouldn't do on Sabbath and this and that and the other thing actually comes six chapters before the law was actually spelled mm-hmm. out. So there was some existence of Sabbath or whatever prior to that, and you can kind of infer that it probably go back clear back to you know the creation, creation where the seventh if, day, the, you know... When is, God sanctifies and sets apart something, it's always for people. Right. It's, it's not for himself. Right. And so... But, you know, the, so the, there can be a separation between the actual mm-hmm. law part of things and then the underlying... So let's, let's go back into eternity, and we'll end on this it's note. If we go back to the great controversy in heaven, Ellen makes the statement in Thoughts in the Man of Blessing that it came to the angels as an awakening to something almost unthought of, that there was law. Right. And... It seems to me that they saw themselves as family. They saw themselves in a love and trust relationship with God. Uh, They felt as though they were children of God, and they did things because they were in part of the family. And, And I think that that is God's, the model Jesus came to give us, is that model. And that's the model, again, where Paul is trying to take us to the model of of trust. I haven't said anything really different, but just wanted to add that. Okay, so I think our time is up. Any other comments that you want to add before we quit? Um, Just that, you know, when you're talking about this balancing between the rigidity versus chaos sort of thing, and I really liked what you're saying as far as living in the light of, of Jesus and of who he is and in our life and that also then within that framework or um, that then when it comes to the questions then it has to do with relationships and and making the choices of well what is going to build my relationship with this person or help or versus harm their relationship with God or you know whatever and that it's through that lens that will help to to be able to decide what is more, more in um, in keeping with the principles that that God's given us. Well said.
The law was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Mm-hmm. That term, I, of course, has an interesting background in the Greek mm-hmm. of, of someone who was tr- hired, it was kind of a slave hired to the pedagogue, take the ch- children to mm-hmm. school and make sure they didn't play truant. And as long as they stayed at school, they didn't need the tutor. But actually, tutor probably isn't the best translation of that. I don't think we have. I don't think we have one. Slave carer. Yes, yes. And they were educated slaves. They would Mm -hmm. be educated. Yeah. Well, I'd like to. I'll use a homey little illustration. We. I lived in a house when I was a small child. That was bounded in the front by a hedge. And on the back lawn, which sloped downward, there was a row of rose bushes. And one day, my, one Friday afternoon, my dad brought home from town a small bicycle. And everybody was so excited. The whole family was out on the back lawn, excited about Jeannie was going to learn to ride. <laughs> so they urged me to get on. And what they didn't know is I had terrible astigmatism with no correction, and I um, was afraid of anything that moved, <laughs> anything, What's anything fun? moving. Uh-huh. Uh, so I couldn't, I had, couldn't handle motion. I see thorns in your future. <laughs> <laughs> you know what's about to happen, don't you? Uh, and so I get on the bike and I grip the wheel and the, grip the handlebars, and my dad gives me a shove. And I just close my eyes and let the bike go where it wants, and sure enough, I end up in the thorns, <gasps> in the rose bushes. And my brother and my father were howling with laughter while my mother tried to pick up the pieces. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and, and she scolded the menfolk and sent them into the house and, and dried my tears. And then we had Sabbath, and I didn't have to ride my bike on Sabbath. So my dad said to my brother on Sunday morning, he said, I'm too busy to teach Jean how to ride. Would you take her to the front yard and teach her how to ride? So he took me to the front yard. We got the, the porch. There was a sidewalk out to the gate, and then there was the hedge on either side of the gate. So my brother gives me the shove, and I pull up my legs <laughs> and shut my eyes and grip the handlebars, and I wobble across the lawn, and suddenly the bicycle stops, and I'm still upright. It had gone right into the hedge. And we do this over and over and over again until finally my brother realized what I was doing, <laughs> closing my eyes. He said, How can you learn to ride your bike as you keep your eyes closed? How old were you, three? I was six. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was old enough to <laughs> try to do better than that. <laughs> and so I started kind of squinting my eyes because I was afraid to see where I would end up. And I would end up in the, in the hedge. And eventually I was able to pedal. And then I was able to ride. And as long as my brother would give me that push, I could go somewhere. So we went to the other side of the hedge. And I started riding on the road. To me that hedge is, symbolizes the law. And what we've done is trying to make it a bunch of thorns. Mm-hmm. But the law is there to protect me until I learn to learn trust in Christ. 
years ago, Andy Stanley did a, a series on the Ten Commandments uh, that he called it was called Guardrails. Mm-hmm. Uh, with that the same idea in play, mm-hmm. it was. You can use the, all kinds of ones: mm-hmm. playpen, small children. Yeah. All right. Well, let me need to have prayer and go to church. Dear God, we thank you for the law that you gave us to meet us where we were, where we need to, we where we were, and and where we needed to be in our intermediate state. We thank you that you made it a hedge, a protection, and not something thorny. And we ask that we will never stop appreciating it, but that we may learn to live on the other side of it in Christ, looking at the principles in his, not only in his word but in his life and learning through his eyes how to apply them to each situation. We thank you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.